0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, who by thy Son Jesus Christ has set up on earth a kingdom of holiness to measure its strength against all others, make faith to prevail over fear, and righteousness over force, and truth over the lie, and love and concord over all things, through the same Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, today we begin in Romans chapter 6. We're actually concluding this chapter, coming to the very end of it, and looking in particular at one verse, that is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Romans chapter 6. We're going to take a look specifically at chapter 6, verse 23, a passage that I'm sure is very familiar to all of you. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." We are coming to the end of the sixth chapter of Romans, and because we are coming to the end, it is helpful, I think, for us to remember, and there is a sense in which chapter 6 verse 23 is a summation of what Paul has been saying thus far, it's helpful for us to just remember what Paul has been saying in the previous chapter and in the first part of this chapter as he comes to its conclusion. So just a brief introduction or review. In chapter five of this epistle, Paul had been talking about the permanence of our salvation, about the fact that for those who are in Christ Jesus, salvation is not a temporary thing, nor is it something that we are capable of losing It is a permanent thing. It is an eternal thing. He begins this chapter, chapter five, with the words, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why our salvation is permanent, he said, is because now we who were once at war with God are now at peace with God. Not by virtue of anything that we have done, but by virtue of what God has done on our behalf in the person of Jesus Christ. So we are no longer at war with God, we are at peace with God. And all of this is due to the fact that Jesus Christ has come in the person of the new Adam. Uh, Jesus is the one to whom we have been united in the same way that we have been united to Adam. Just as our destiny was bound up in Adam's destiny, so now Paul says our destiny has been bound up in Jesus Christ. We have been united to Him. Look at chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So we were all in Adam. We talked about federal theology here, how the fact that you and I were represented by Adam, and when Adam fell, we all fell as a consequence, and we're all paying the penalty for Adam's transgression. But now, Paul says, we have been united to Jesus Christ. He said it was like a marriage, and when you marry someone, your status change. Uh, your name sometimes changes. Uh, you are given a whole new position. And the same is true for those who have been united to Christ. We have an altogether new status. Whereas our fate was bound up in Adam before now because we have been united to Christ in a manner that's like unto marriage, so our fate is now bound to him. His fate is our fate. Now in chapter 6, what Paul is going to go on to talk about are the objections to this idea that our salvation is eternal, that there's no way that it can be lost, and that it is all a matter of grace, it's all a matter of a free gift. But Paul knows there are going to be people that are immediately going to raise their hand and object to this idea. They're going to say, well, now wait a minute. If it is true that we are saved not by virtue of anything that we do... If our fate is now bound up with Christ, no longer with Adam, and nothing can separate us from the love of God, well then, it doesn't really matter how we live. We can live any way we want, because if God's going to save us, he's going to save us anyway. And of course, that is what Paul is dealing here in chapter 6. You'll see that he begins this chapter with a rhetorical question. What shall we say then? life. The objection that Paul is dealing with here is that grace, if it's true that we're saved by grace, God's undeserved, unearned favor, that is ultimately going to lead to lawlessness. And Paul says it is not true. Because we've not only been united to Christ in his death, that is to say that as he died for our sins, so we were buried with him, we have also been raised, he said, just as Jesus was raised on the third day to a new life. Therefore, just as Christ cannot go back into the grave because he has been raised to a new life, so we cannot go back to our old ways. We talked about this the last time that we met two weeks ago. We didn't meet last week, of course, because of the weather. But two weeks ago, we talked about the fact that this is really Paul's solution to the whole notion of holiness. This is his answer to the doctrine of sanctification. That we reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. We said that a person who is an adult may want to be a child again, but they can't go back to being a child again. They can act childishly, but when somebody acts childishly, what do we say to them? We say, grow up, because we acknowledge the fact that you can't go back to what you once were. You can only go forward, and that is exactly what Paul is saying here. A person who's been united to Christ in his death and in his resurrection can't go back. There's only one place to go, and that is to go forward. So he says we must go forward and live lives of holiness because we can no longer return to the old ways. He says we are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Now that is really interesting, that language of slavery. Uh, Just take a look at Romans chapter six, beginning at verse 16. What then, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Some years ago, Ray Steadman, who is, um, who was, he has since gone to glory, but who was a great pastor out in California, tells the story of how one day he was walking down the streets of Los Angeles. This was back in the 70s. And uh, he saw a man coming toward him on the sidewalk. And the man was wearing a sandwich board. And the man was obviously sort of a, a hippie. Um, and he was coming towards Stedman, who's, you know, this sort of, clean-cut pastor, and he sees this man coming toward him. He's got a long beard, long hair, and he's wearing a sandwich board. And he gets just close enough that Ray Steadman can see the writing on the sandwich board, and it said, I am a slave to Christ. At which point, Steadman, uh, not wanting to have an encounter with this man, passed to the other side of the road. (laughs) But he was still curious to see what was on the other side of the sandwich board. And so as the man passed by, Stedman turned around to see what was on the other side, and it was the words, whose slave are you? I'm a slave to Jesus Christ, and the question is, whose slave are you? Well, that is exactly the question the Apostle Paul is asking here in Romans chapter 6. He says, we all have a tendency to think of ourselves as free, but we're not really free. We're all serving somebody, every single one of us. We're either slaves to sin, which he says leads to death, or we are slaves to righteousness, which leads to eternal life, but we all are in service to someone. Who slave are you? Any Bob Dylan fans out there today? Anybody a Bob Dylan fan? Oh, you ought to be. I mean, he wrote some great songs. He wrote a wonderful song some years ago, he made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ some years ago, and after that profession of faith, Bob Dylan wrote this little song. It is a great summation of what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 6, that if we have died to sin and we are alive to Christ, we are now his servants, no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. Bob Dylan wrote this song goes like this. You probably won't be able to read the words up there. I can barely read them on the screen myself, but let me just go ahead and read them to you. Bob Dylan wrote, you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Might be a rock and roll addict, dancing on the stage, money, drugs at your command, women in a cage. You may be a businessman or some high degree thief. They may call you doctor or they may call you chief but you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, it may be the devil, it may be the Lord, but you're gonna have to serve somebody. You may be a state trooper. You may be a young Turk. You may be the head of some big TV network. You may be rich or poor. Maybe you're blind or lame. Maybe living in another country under another name. But you're gonna have to serve somebody Yes, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil, or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. That's the reality, folks, and that's what the Apostle Paul is reminding us of. Every single one of us serves somebody. And we're either serving sin, which leads to unrighteousness and to death, or we are serving Jesus Christ, which leads to life eternal. But you're going to have to serve somebody. And that's what Paul is talking about here in this sixth chapter of Romans. None of us is ultimately free. We're serving one or the other. And that's really what chapter 6, verse 23 is summing up. For the wages of sin is death. That's one means of service. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible. That's not to imply that there aren't other important verses in the Bible, and it's not to imply that that the whole Bible is not important. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear, writing to Timothy, that the whole of Scripture is divinely inspired. It is God-breed. that is theopneustos, and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training in righteousness. The whole of Scripture. But we cannot deny the fact that there are just some little golden verses that just sort of Distill in a few words the message of the gospel and Romans chapter 6 verse 23 is one of those it's taught in Sunday school this is one of those verses of the Bible that you really ought to read Mark learn and inwardly digest this is one you ought to commit to memory because if you're going to be an effective witness to Jesus Christ this is one of the answers to the questions that people ask why should I believe in Jesus Christ And the answer is because the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a gem of a passage, a very important passage, and it introduces us to what the Bible speaks about in any number of places, what theologians sometimes refer to as the doctrine of the two ways. The doctrine of the two ways. Now, Paul talks about this at great length in his epistles, but it's not a Pauline idea. Paul, of course, is simply teaching what Jesus taught before him. And Jesus taught this message of the two ways. Let me give you an example of where you'll find that. Keep your finger in Romans and turn to Matthew chapter 7 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 7 is the latter part of the Sermon on the Mount, that most famous sermon by the most famous preacher the world has ever known. And in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus introduces us to this idea, this doctrine of the two ways. He talks, for example, about two gates, two roads, two trees, two types of fruit, Two houses and two foundations. So let's just go ahead and begin. We'll start at chapter 7 of Matthew, beginning at verse 13. Jesus said, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Now right there, what Jesus is saying is that there are two ways. There are two paths. One path is broad and easy. That's the way of the world. It's broad, it's easy, and he said, but the problem with it is it leads to destruction. He said, but there is another way, and it is a narrow way, and it is a hard way. I think it's important for us to hear that as Christians living in 21st century America that being a Christian is not easy. There is this sort of prosperity gospel that is sometimes taught in churches that if you turn your life over to Jesus Christ, everything is going to be better. But actually Jesus said this is quite the opposite, he said, follow me. And you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hated by all, you're going to be dragged before kings and governors. It is a hard way, but he says it is the path that ultimately leads to life. He says there is a broad gate and there is a narrow gate. Strive to enter through the narrow gate, he says. Now what I want you to notice is that there are two paths. There are Two gates, one gate leads to life, one leads to death. One path is, is easy and broad, it leads to destruction. One path is hard and difficult, but it leads to eternal life. And of course, the question we're meant to ask ourselves is, well, which gate are we striving to go through? Which path are we living on? Because obviously you cannot be on two paths simultaneously. These are two paths going in different directions. You remember the old Robert Frost poem about the yellow wood, two roads diverged in a wood one day, and I took which one? The one less traveled, and that has made all the difference. But the point is that you cannot be on both simultaneously. You're either on one or you're on the other. That's what Jesus is teaching here. He goes on to put it this way, verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Two different types of trees, two different types of fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. A bad tree, he says, an unhealthy tree simply cannot bear good fruit, nor can a healthy tree, a good tree produce bad fruit. Two different types of fruit, two different types of trees. He goes on, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fell, fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the, flood, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Two different houses. From what Jesus tells us, they are exactly alike the houses are exactly alike. Imagine somebody who has exactly the same plans and uses exactly the same material to construct these houses. But one is built on what? On the rock, one is built on the sand. The one that is on the rock, when the storms comes, stands firm. The one that is on the sand, what? Is destroyed. So Jesus' point is this, spiritually speaking, You are either on the path that is broad and easy, and leads to destruction, or you are on the path that is narrow and hard, but leads to eternal life. Which path? You're either striving to go through the broad gate, or you're striving to go through the narrow gate. One leads to death, one leads to life. Which gate are you going through? You're either a healthy tree producing healthy fruit in keeping with righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, or you're a tree that is producing poisonous fruit, bad fruit. Which one is it? You're either building your house on the solid foundation of the gospel, or you are building it on the things of this life. And when the storm comes, one is going to stand, one is going to fall. Which one is it for you? You see how it is? It's, it's two ways. It's either this or it's that. That's the doctrine of the two ways. And it's Jesus who teaches that here. Well, what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 6 is he is echoing that. He says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. Which one is it for you? I mean, when you think about it, the Christian gospel is not all that difficult. It really is quite literally one way or the other. This is the doctrine of the two ways. And it's not just Paul who teaches it. It's not even Jesus alone who teaches it. You find it even in the Old Testament. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn back to the very first psalm, Psalm 1, and you can see this same idea. In fact, it's almost as though Paul is echoing what we hear in Psalm 1, the very first psalm in all the Psalter. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So there's two ways right here in this first paragraph. There is the way of the wicked, the counsel of the wicked, the way of the sinners, the seat of the scoffers. And then there is the way of the Lord, the way of the law. He goes on, verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that He does, He prospers. But the way of the wicked are not so. They are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Two ways, two paths, two destinations. One is life, one is destruction. And the question is, which one are we on? We're all slaves, Paul says, to sin, or we are slaves to righteousness. Whose slave are you? And that's what he's getting at, as I said. And that's one of the reasons why Romans chapter six, verse twenty-three is such an important verse, is because it sets forth in very simple language this doctrine of the two ways: wages of sin, which is death; the gift of God, which is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The wages of sin—it is the payment for sin. It is something that we earn, contrasted with the free gift. So one is something that we earn, one is something that we do not. Dr. Carl Menninger was the uh, director of and founder of the famous Menninger Clinic in Topeka, Kansas. Perhaps you've heard of him. Um, He was a psychiatrist, noted psychiatrist. And one of the things that he noticed that he was dealing with, with patients Uh, Increasingly so, was that they were very disturbed and they were troubled by a sense of guilt. And he said, but they had no means of really dealing with that guilt. And one of the reasons why they had no means of dealing with that guilt is that they had lost entirely the idea of sin. And so back in 1973, Dr. Menninger wrote a little book called, Whatever Happened to Sin? And it's a very insightful little book. I don't agree with everything that he says. But he does point out that we have lost a sense of sin. What sin really is. And I think that it's increasingly so in our day. He wrote that book, as I said, in the 1970s. It's even more the case in the present. He said sin used to be. And this is a good definition. This is really a biblical definition. He said sin used to be a violation of the laws of God. That's what what a sin is. Sin, simply put, is doing anything that God forbids and failing to do anything that God commands. That's, That's what sin is, pure and simple. And he said, and everybody had that understanding that that's what sin is. He said, but in the modern period, sin has passed into... Crime. Now, what's the difference between sin and crime? Sin is a violation of God's laws, crimes are violations of the laws of men. Sin is a violation of God's law, a crime is a violation of man's laws. And then he said what happened is that crime degenerated into symptoms. We no longer focused on the offense, but on the things that led to the offense. And symptoms imply that there's not necessarily anything wrong with us, but there may be outside factors that have simply influenced us. And so he said, symptoms have removed all guilt. Yes, I did that, but I'm no longer responsible for my own action. There were extenuating circumstances. Perhaps it was my environment. Perhaps it was my upbringing. Perhaps it was my education or lack thereof. But whatever it is, these are the things that led, ultimately, to me committing a crime. But a crime, of course, is simply a violation of man's laws, and we're all guilty of that in one way or another. Another, And so he said, we have completely lost the idea that sin is not simply a violation of man-made laws or regulations. It is a violation of an eternal law, the law of God. And then he went on to say this. Because sin became crime and crime became symptoms and symptoms removed guilt, people don't know what to do with this feeling that they nevertheless have. And he says, there is no moral health without responsibility and no mental health without moral health. And that's what he was finding with his patients. They were no longer responsible for their actions according to the culture. And so as a result, they had no moral health. But without moral health, he says, we have no mental health. Now he went on to talk, for example, about the seven deadly sins you're all familiar with the seven deadly sins those are categories of sins that were really hammered out by medieval theologians and they're called the seven deadly sins not because they are worse than any other sin you all realize that all sin is deadly i mean that's what paul is saying here in romans chapter 6 for the wages of sin is death all sin when you say well it's only a little white lie or it's it's only a little sin That's like saying the meat is only a little rotten. I mean, rotten meat is rotten meat, isn't it? All sin is capable of killing you. It doesn't matter the amount. All sin is deadly. But theologians called these the seven deadly sins because they were really, in in a sense, the fountainheads from which all the other sins spring. Every sin that you and I commit can ultimately be traced back to these seven in particular. So just let's take a brief look at the seven deadly sins. The first of all the seven deadly sins is pride, pride. And what did Menager say about pride? He said, it is pride of power, pride of knowledge, pride of virtue, whatever you're proud about he said, ultimately, what pride does, in whatever form, is it destroys relationships. Because pride impla- implies that somehow, some way, I'm better than you. I'm, I'm proud of my intellect. Well, if you're proud of your intellect, and you are a, a bright person, what does that imply about other people? Yeah, exactly. So pride, whether it's pride of virtue or pride of knowledge or pride of your position, whatever it may be, sometimes we're proud of our heritage. What does that say to somebody who does not have a distinguished heritage that you're less than? What pride does is it kills, he says, relationships. It destroys relationships in whatever form it comes. Lust, and lust includes all sexual sins anything that god forbids he says what does it do it destroys our own personality and it undercuts trust you know why is it that when somebody is unfaithful in a marriage it is very difficult to salvage the relationship because all relationships ultimately are built on trust Now that doesn't mean that it's not capable of being salvaged, it just means that it is very difficult to salvage a relationship in which the trust has been destroyed. But that's what lust does, it destroys trust. Gluttony. It's a good message for us, especially as we approach Thanksgiving and Christmas, gluttony. Not just gluttony for food, gluttony for anything. Gluttony for alcoholism. Gluttony for a particular type of food. What does gluttony do? It destroys the body. We all know that. It's one of the reasons I hate to go to the doctor. Because inevitably, he says, you need to lose so much weight. And it's hard. It's difficult. But we recognize that we need that in order to be healthy. But what does gluttony do? It destroys the body. Anger. Wrath, what does that do? It destroys other people. I can tell you I have seen a father destroy his child by just an ill-mannered word, by just an offhand remark. I've seen little children just absolutely devastated by it. Anger destroys relationship How about sloth? Manager said, sloth destroys opportunities. You could be the brightest person in the world, and you could make a huge difference in the life of other people, a huge difference in the world. But if you are a lazy person, your opportunity to do so is wasted. And as a consequence, your life is wasted. It destroys opportunities, it destroys healthy ambitions. Envy. Wishing you had what somebody else has. What does it destroy? It destroys contentment. And let's just go ahead and admit it. We all want to be content. That's what we're all searching for. It's what we're all longing for, contentment. That peace which passes human understanding. But so often we think, if I can only have what you have, then I can be content. And then we get it. And we discover it's not enough, we want more. That's what envy does, it destroys contentment. And what about greed? Greed destroys generosity. Menninger in that little book talks about a very wealthy young man that he was dealing with. And the man was always obsessed with his money. And Menninger said, well, if it's such a problem in your life, why don't you just give it away? And the young man said this, at least he was self-aware, He says, I know I should, but I just cannot bear to do it. That's greed. And greed was eating him up. It was destroying him. It was destroying a spirit of generosity. Now, the point that he was making in that book is that all of the seven sins were deadly. Every single one of them leads to death. Pure and simple. And it's death in three ways. We've talked about this when we looked at Genesis and the fall of man. It leads to a death spiritually. That is to say, it destroys your relationship with God. It leads to a death morally because we no longer want to take responsibility for our own actions. We want to blame other people. I'm not responsible for what I did. Somebody else is responsible for that. The woman thou gavest me, she caused me to sin. It destroys our sense of morality, our sense of right and wrong, our sense of culpability. And ultimately, it destroys us physically because as Paul reminds us here, the wages of sin is death. Every single one of us dies physically, morally, spiritually. That is where the path of sin leads. And that's one way. That is one way. And the question is, Are you in that way? Are you on that path? Is that the gate that you're striving to get through? But there's two ways. That's the first way. Yes, thanks be to God, there is a second way. And the second way is the way that leads to life. For the wages of sin are death, the consequences, the payment for sin. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What does it mean to have eternal life? I think when most people think of eternal life, they think of life that goes on forever. I'm going to pass out of this life, which is temporal, and I'm passing into that life, which is eternal, and it will go on and on forever. Is that what Jesus means by eternal life? Well, that's part of what he means by eternal life. That's why C.S. Lewis at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia describes their new adventures in Narnia as the rest of the story. He says, everything up to this point had been but the title page. Now, he said, begins the real journey, the real adventure in which each chapter is better than the one before. Yes, it is life never-ending. But actually, that's just scratching the surface of what the Bible means and what Jesus really means by eternal life. Eternal life is not just something that you and I enjoy in the future. It is something that we are intended to experience in the here and now. So turn to John's gospel for just a moment, to John chapter 17. That's the first place we're going to stop, then we're going to go back further. But in John chapter 17... beginning at verse 1. This is what is known as the high priestly prayer. I call it the real Lord's prayer. You know, that prayer that we pray on Sunday that we call the Lord's prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, it's really a misnomer to call it the Lord's prayer. Incidentally, Roman Catholics don't call it the Lord's prayer. They call it the our Father. And that really, if you think about it, is a better name for it. The reason why this is not the Lord's Prayer is because this is not a prayer that Jesus ever prayed Himself. It's an example of prayer that He gave to the disciples. But Jesus never prayed, forgive me my trespasses, because He had never trespassed. It's a model for prayer. We simply call it the Lord's Prayer because Jesus taught it to His disciples. But I think here in John chapter 17, we have the real Lord's Prayer because this is a prayer that Jesus Himself actually offered. You will notice that in the Gospels, oftentimes, Jesus never let his disciples see him pray. Now, every now and then he would, at the tomb of Lazarus, he would pray to the Father for strength to raise Lazarus from the dead and so forth. But prayer, this time of communion with the Father, was a very intimate thing for Jesus. He would often go off to a lonely place by himself to have community communion rather, with his Father. And the disciples were not necessarily invited to be a part of that. You'll recall even on the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went off by himself. He asked them to stay and watch and pray, but he went off by himself to converse and to commune with the Father. But as Jesus was coming to the end of his ministry, he allowed the disciples the opportunity to see him pray. He pulled back the curtain, as it were, and he gave them the opportunity to see what he was really talking to the Father about. And this is it. At this point, you're entering the Holy of Holies, as you will. So look at chapter 17, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. He's going to give us a definition of it. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. He said, and this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is is. It's not just life that goes on forever. I mean, if anybody is suffering here on this planet from a a debilitating disease, and I've known people who have suffered with a debilitating disease for the greater part of their lives, 30, 40 years, if you were to tell them they are going to have eternal life, and the thought was that they were going to have to endure this for eternity, they'd much rather end it all now. Eternal life is not just life that goes on forever. Eternal life is the life that we have when we are in fellowship with Jesus Christ. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. The wages of sin lead to death. The gift of God leads to a relationship with the one who made you. People will spend millions of dollars every single year going to psychiatrists and psychologists trying to figure out why they're here, why they've been placed on this planet, what their raison d'etre is, their reason for being. And one of the reasons many people are frustrated today is because they do not have the relationship with the one who made them. And that's the only place where you discover what your real purpose is. So that is eternal life. And it's not just that. Go back to John chapter 10 now. And let's start at verse, well, let's start at verse 1. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. and have it abundantly. So when we say the wages of sin, the penalty for sin, the payment for our sins is death, and we say the free gift of God is eternal life, this is what we mean by eternal life. Yes, it is a life that goes on forever, but the best part about it is that it is a life that is lived in communion with God, and it is a life that is full and abundant. And that is something that you do not have to wait to experience. It is something that you can experience right here on earth. One way is a gift. One way is the payment. Would you rather earn something? Would you rather be given a gift? Especially when you realize what the payment is it's interesting to note the word that Paul uses when you go back to Romans chapter 6 for the free gift. It is the word charisma, charisma, and that's exactly what it means. It means a free gift. You can't earn it. You can't purchase it. It is a free gift, and it only comes through Jesus Christ. So here's the question for you as we finish out this sixth chapter of Romans. Which path are you on? Which gate are you passing through? Which foundation are you building your life on? On the shifting sands of this world or on the solid rock of God's word? Are you earning the wages of sin, which is death, Or have you received the free gift of God, which is eternal life, full and abundant life through Jesus Christ our Lord? But folks, you need to understand there are only two ways, and you're on one path or the other. That's one of the things that many people find offensive about Christianity. Well, isn't there another way? There's no other way. This is the way. May God grant that we may walk in it." So Romans chapter 6, verse 23 is an extraordinary little verse. There are many people out there in the world, they are searching, they are longing, there's something missing in their life, but they don't know what it is. This is what we have to present to them. We have to present to them the fact that they are on one of two paths. One path leads to destruction, but one path is a free gift and it leads to eternal life. Why should I believe in Jesus Christ? Why should I become a Christian? Why should I come to church? Because you're on a path that leads to destruction if you're not on the path that leads to eternal life. Jesus says, I am the door, I am the gate. Enter through me and you will find everything that your heart desires and more. Now, we finished up a little bit early, that rarely happens, but I don't want to start Romans chapter 7 yet, so let me just pause there for a minute. We have about 10 minutes and give you the opportunity to ask any questions that you have about this or anything else for that matter. Yes, Lon. I know you told me a hundred times that you talk about the relationship with God. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's like anything else. It's like any kind of relationship. Um, You know, the best way I can describe it is this. If somebody asks me, and I used to always use Queen Elizabeth II as the example, but since she's gone to glory, but let's just say that she's still alive. I'll just use her as an example. If somebody were to say to me, do you know Queen Elizabeth II? I could have said, back in the summertime when I was in England? Yes, I do. Um, In fact, I've been to her house. I know what kind of dog she likes. I know who her children are. I know when she was born, and uh, I know what kind of drink she drinks in the evening. I know what her favorite residence is. And what I'm saying is I know Queen Elizabeth in the sense that I know a great deal about her. But if somebody were to say, yeah, but that's not what I mean. I mean, do you know her personally? Well, then the answer would have to be, no, I don't. And I think for many people, they know about Jesus Christ. They know the teaching of the church. But they have never entered into that personal relationship or fellowship with him. And that is what is required. I pointed this out in the sermon on Sunday. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said on that day, there will be many who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do great works in your name? And Jesus will say on that day, depart from me, I never knew you. So every single one of us has to come into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not enough to know about him. You must know him personally how does that happen it's really not that difficult it's the same way that you meet any other person for christians you have to be willing to acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you cannot save yourself and then you simply invite him to come in and be your savior yes he's the savior of the world his death is a full perfect and sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the whole world It is sufficient for all. It is efficient only for those who invite Him in. Let me repeat that. His death upon the cross is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. It is efficient only for those who invite Him in. To be their Savior and to be their Lord. And that's the beginning of the relationship. Now, with any relationship, the health of that relationship will depend upon how much time you spend together. So the more time you spend with God in prayer and in Bible study, the stronger that relationship will be. In fact, you know, you've seen this. There are husbands and wives who have been together for so long that they actually begin to look like each other as the years go by. They adopt the same manner of dress, the same attitudes, the same styles, the same likes and dislikes. And the more time you spend with God, the more he will transform you into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. But it is efficient only for those who invite him in. Yes, Margaret. (laughs) <laughs> That's a great point, absolutely. Yes, we, what it is, is it, is it is the entrance in, is what Jesus is talking about. That's what Lon's question is, how do I get on the narrow path? How do I get through the gate? That is the entrance into the life. Once we are on that path, absolutely, it is, there are times when it seems as though we veer off. The good news is that once we enter onto that path, we do not journey on it alone. And that's where God, the Holy Spirit, brings us back in. Sometimes gently He draws us back, sometimes with a little more force. But that's the good news. But that's why Jesus talks about entering through the narrow gate, entering through the door, and talks about Himself being the door or being the gate. We have to enter in. Once we are on that path, then the Holy Spirit journeys with us. Yeah. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, there's no question. Well, well, it's very easy. I mean, it is. I mean, legalistic. I mean, that depends upon how you look at it. I think it's pretty straightforward. There's one entrance that leads to the path of righteousness. There's one entrance that leads to destruction. Um, So what is the door to the path of life? Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the door. And that's why Jesus is the only way to eternal life. There is a sense in which there are many other doors, if you will, that lead to destruction. But the point is that Jesus is saying there's only one narrow way that leads to eternal life. Now that is the unique claim of Christianity. I know that that is offensive to many people in a postmodern world. I want you to understand it was offensive to the people in Jesus' day. I mean, they found that very offensive, that Jesus, I mean, Jesus' claims were extraordinary claims. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. What we want him to say is, I am a way, I'm a truth, I'm a life, and I'm one way to the Father. We would even be comfortable if he would say, I'm the best way, I'm the best truth, I'm the best life, I'm the best way to the Father. But that's not what he says. This is what theologians refer to as the scandal of radical particularity. That's big, isn't it? The scandal of radical particularity. It's a scandal because it is radical and it is particular. There's only one way, and every other way leads to destruction, death, misery, and loss. Now, don't get mad at me for saying it. I'm not the one that said it, but Jesus did. And it's one of the reasons why John 14, 6 is one of those passages that is assigned to be read at at funerals, and yet I go to many churches where they read it, and they cut off that last part. They'll say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life and they leave off that part, and no one comes to the Father but by me because they find it offensive, and they're afraid of offending those who are out there in the congregation. I say to that, well, you may be afraid of offending them. I'm more afraid of offending God because he's the one that said it. So, Bill, and then I'll come back here. I got two ladies, go ahead. All right, I'll repeat the question. Sure. respond to that? So the question is this, if we come to know God through His Word, and His Word as Christians we believe is found in the Bible, how do we trust the Bible? How do we know that the Bible is a trustworthy document? How, how can we know that what has been passed on to us is something that is legitimate? Somebody just didn't write all this stuff up. Well, what I would say to you is you trust the Bible in the same way that you trust any other book. I mean, Christian faith, you understand Christian faith is based upon historical events. It's based upon evidence. I mean, that that was one of the things that's so wonderful about the story of Thomas in the Gospels, that when the disciples said, we've seen the Lord, Thomas said, well, good for you. I don't believe it. And I'll be honest with you, we call him Doubting Thomas, we give him a rough time and so forth. If I'd been there, I'd have said exactly the same thing. I probably wouldn't have been as polite. I would have said, I don't know what you're smoking, Peter, but I can tell you right now, people don't come back from the dead. I wouldn't have believed it either. He required evidence in order to believe. And the Bible is the most well-attested to book of antiquity. We have more extant copies of the New Testament than any other book from antiquity. And we have extant copies that come within 30 years of the events themselves. That is extraordinary. If you give up the New Testament, and there's plenty of information that I could give you on this, but if you give up the New Testament, you have to give up every single piece of literature from antiquity. Caesar's Gallic Wars, the history of the Punic Wars, everything from antiquity falls to the wayside. We can know nothing historical. How do I know? Somebody asked me the question about the Gettysburg Address. Delivered November 19, 1863, supposedly. Any eyewitnesses there in Gettysburg? Still living? No? We don't know. But we have plenty of evidence to suggest that this is the way it transpired. And the Bible is the most well-attested to book. There's no time to go into that, but there's plenty of evidence for that. And I will say this much. We don't worship the Bible. We revere it. We don't worship the book. We worship the one who's revealed in it. And what I tell people is, if you're having a hard time trusting the Bible, just try living according to it for a while. And you will discover the truth of it. It's a great answer. You know, the reality is many people use that as an excuse, quite frankly. I mean, Jesus said it is hard. It is a hard way. If you truly and earnestly seek, you will find. If you diligently knock, the door will be open to you. But if you're just sort of laissez faire, casual about it, no. but i don't really yeah. think i understand you have a maybe clouds or right yeah i mean i i i would be the first one to admit to you if You know the images of gates of pearl and streets of gold i don't know about you but i think the low country looks a lot better than that i mean i'm just going to be honest with you it's hard for me to imagine that so let me share a little story with you just briefly it was told by charles haddon spurgeon and Haddon, you know spurgeon was the great preacher and baptist preacher in london in the 19th century and he said that he knew a man who was a Christian, but really struggled with the idea of heaven. What's that going to be like? What's eternal life going to be like? He just really struggled with it. And that's because this life is the only thing you and I have known. And he said, so he really had a hard time, because whenever he thought of heaven, he thought of gates of pearl, streets of gold, and countless angels sitting on clouds that he didn't know. And he said um, that was not a very attractive place for him. But then that man lost his younger brother. He was extremely close to that younger brother. And he said, now when he thought of heaven, he no longer thought of streets of gold and gates of pearl and countless angels sitting on clouds. He now thought of those things, but he also thought of one little fellow that he knew. And Spurgeon said, as that man's life went on and he became an old man, It suddenly dawned on him one day that he actually knew more people in heaven than he did on earth. And that's what he was longing for more than anything else. He was longing for that great reunion when he would be reunited with those who had gone before. in that place where there's no more sighing, no more grief, but life everlasting. That's how Jesus describes it in the farewell discourse in John's gospel, John 14. He says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I come again, I will take you to be with me, that where I am, there you may be also. So when we talk about eternal life, I think it is a hard thing for us to grasp. But part of it is a reunion with those we love. It is not idleness, I think Lewis captured it right at the end of the Chronicles of Narnia. It is the grand adventure. The grand adventure in which each chapter is better than the one before. The Apostle Paul put it this way, and this is probably the best I can do. But the Apostle Paul said, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It has not entered into the mind of man what God has prepared for those who love him. And I think that is what we're aiming for. That's what we're looking for. I don't know what it's going to be like. All I know is that everything that I need for true contentment, peace, joy, and happiness will be supplied. It has not entered into the imagination of man. One last question. Cam? I just wanted the, the technical thing. Which is know Jesus Christ and the bottom, Christ Jesus? Right. No, he's the door, as it were. He's the entrance into this path that leads to eternal life. So it's in a relationship with him that we pass through that narrow door. Yeah. Oh, Christ Jesus and Jesus Christ? Paul just does that sometimes. You understand that Jesus and Christ, Jesus is his name. Christ is not his name. That's his title. So, the Messiah Jesus, or Jesus the Messiah. It makes no difference. Christ simply means anointed one. So, I don't want you to think that that's his name, Jesus, and his surname is Christ. You know, Jeff, and his surname is Miller. No, it's Jesus the Christ, or the Christ Jesus. That's all Paul is doing. So, all right. Well, let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy and for the free gift of eternal life. We thank you that the wages of sin, which are death, are not the final word for us when we pass through that narrow gate who is Jesus. We enter onto that path which ultimately, though it can be difficult in this life, leads to eternal life, to that life which is so full, so abundant that not even our wildest imaginations can consider or contemplate or take in what it will ultimately be for us. So Father, if there be any here who do not have that personal relationship, they may know a great deal about things, biblical or theological or religious, but they may not have a relationship with you. If that be the case, draw them today into a relationship. Let them enter through that narrow gate and get on that path, that path which you will lead them on, which will bring them ultimately to their final destination and their home. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.